Hey everyone, and welcome back to Country Music Made Me. Thank you so much for joining us once again. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content and also stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, just head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me and give us a follow there as well. On today's episode, we are excited to welcome John Jeffers of Whiskey Myers. Now the band is coming up on 15 years together. It was actually May 12th of 2007 that they played their first real show. However, most of the band has actually known each other since they were kids. It's been an amazing journey and they are getting set to release their new album later this year. So please enjoy our conversation with John Jeffers of Whiskey Myers. I want to go back and talk about maybe a non-musical moment in your life, but it's something I want to figure out because I read a story that there, I believe, was a fish aquarium in your childhood home. And at one point, it got shot with a BB gun or a pellet of some kind, and maybe you got (laughs) blamed, but you said you didn't do it. And I want to clear this up. Did you shoot the fish tank or not? Man, we've got clear air. I did not shoot the aquarium. I did not. All the blame went to the little brother. To this day, you know, if that comes up, it, it, whenever we're eating dinner as a family or something, it, it comes up. And my brother still blames me for the fish aquarium. And both of my parents, you know, my mom passed away a couple of years ago, but I still have the blame to this day. And what happened? Did it like explode or did it just crack? Or I had no clue. And we were such rednecks. The fish aquarium started out as a fish aquarium. But we were so redneck at this point, the fish, I guess the fish died, I don't know, but it had turned into a plant habitat. So it was, okay. my mom was growing plants out of the fish aquarium, you know, the rednecks that we were growing up. But yeah, it didn't fully explode because it was full of, I guess, soil or whatever, but it had a lot of holes in it. <laughs> That's hilarious. And of course, this journey is about the people who have been there for you. And you mentioned your mom. She passed away a couple of years ago. I wanted to talk about her and just tell me what impact she had when you were young and all the way along this journey for you. Um, when I was young growing up, you know, she always, my parents really strived to have a, uh, you can do anything you want to do. And, and my brother and I both still believe that to this day. You know, we really took that to heart growing up. My wife now even makes fun of it. She's like, Hey, you really do believe you can do anything like still you're, you know, you're, you've got a kid and like you're a grown adult, but you still believe you can probably be an astronaut if you wanted to. And that's pushing the boundaries, but she really instilled that in us. And, you know, at first it was me, I was playing ball and I thought I wanted to go, you know, I went to college to play baseball and, you know, that didn't work out. And it was, it just kind of transitioned into music. And I, I'm glad it did for the better. You know, I was really sad about that for a long time, but my mom actually was in bands and I never knew anything about music growing up. I'd heard stories that my dad's, you know, wrote music that he was a songwriter and I didn't really know. And uh, my mom was in bands, but finally one day, Cody Cannon and I, the lead singer, we kind of grew up together to play baseball. And he broke out this picture. And it was, it was a, you know, one of the classic, I don't, I don't know what they are, nine by twelves or something, you know, band photo. Right. And Cody and I were both like, Hey, who's the hot blonde in the middle. And my dad was like, son, that's your mother you know, band. and they used to open up, you know, they had opened up, played with ACDC and really, 
several things. So this whole thing exploded for me. And I was like, well, I want to know more about that. Like, I've never played the guitar. What's, you know, what's going on here? And I had this whole musical background that I wasn't exposed to until I was probably 18, a senior in high school at that time. So an explosion of that. My dad taught Cody and I how to play the guitar. That's how we learned, you know, before we even joined a band or did any of that. So it really, there was a big influence there that I had been missing part of my life that didn't take off until I was, you know, a couple of years into college to work wow. baseball and work out. And then Cody and I got back together and we met Cody Tate, the other guitar player. And then the band thing formed and, the, you know, a dream was born. It's really crazy to know that music really didn't take hold for you until that late in your youth. I saw that baseball was important, but I didn't know it was that important that it really was the focus for you growing up. Right. Yeah. And again, it was just something that we didn't know of, you know, and Cody Cannon had brought over his grandpa's guitar because we heard stories about my dad playing, you know, and he didn't keep guitars around. And I was always curious, you know, I've always heard you can play, but I've never seen it. You know, he brought his grandpa's guitar over and my dad just took off and started playing it. And me and him were like, holy crap, this is really cool. You teach us to play. And he taught him and I both how to play. And it started from there. Wow. And not really growing up around music when you started to play did it come pretty natural for you it was supernatural yeah I took off really I excelled in it very quickly and then I started learning more about the background of my dad's songwriting and my mom's history and then I learned more about my grandpa used to play bands he played uh, steel guitar and some Hawaiian bands you know back in the day before he went to the Korean War and stuff so it was like this big exposure to stuff that I wasn't I would think I was just so focused in baseball and my parents wanted me to do whatever I wanted to do, you know, so right. they didn't drive, they didn't drive sports down my throat. They didn't drive music down my throat. They would do whatever it is we were wanted, you know, they, that's what they just kind of helped pave the way for. And as soon as music came around, then we switched gears and we went towards music. That's awesome. And you do have an artistic side to you as well. You're quite a good drawer. And I saw that you have your own website and you talked about the Jeffers logo and it was your great grandpa who it was sort of his cattle brand that he had. Talk about that and, and sort of that history and your great grandfather and that lineage and, and the importance of that logo for you. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen that my whole life growing up and, and we started in the cattle business and I was young and I guess we had Texas had a pretty bad drought and uh, I'm not sure the years on it, but we ended up getting out of it. But that brand, I grew up drawing that brand. It was important to us, and it's still it's still on at my grandpa's gate right now. I mean, it's oh, okay. still on. At the, as soon as you walk in, it says Jeffers Farms. It's like the big thing, you know. Even though we don't run cows anymore, but yeah, it was always important growing up. And then as soon as we started doing this and more things got involved, I started putting it on my guitar picks. And I was like, well, we, I might as well expose it, you know? So eventually I started using it and just kept with the tr tradition that somehow I could keep that logo alive, I guess. And on the art side, is that something you've always done as well? The drawing and the art side of things? Uh-huh. My dad was, and my grandpa were pretty artistic. My, dad, uh, my grandpa was really good in geometry and woodworking. And my dad always drew a lot. So I grew up doodling. You know, I wouldn't say I'm a full-blown crazy you know, I can't draw that good. I, I get by a little bit, I guess. But yeah, it's always been kind of in me and something I enjoyed to do as a pastime. So I've done a lot of posters and I've done, I did one of our album artworks that had a, the, the wide album, the self-titled wide album had a, 
under all this black light that's on. A lot of people don't know about it, but if you put black light on it, all these things pop out at you. It's pretty neat. Yeah, but, I saw that on Instagram. Do you know how many, like to this day, do you still get messages about that, about people figuring that out? Yeah, we, you know, we didn't really do it. We kind of kept it hidden and we never did a good job at explaining that that was a thing and what those symbols really mean in it. So I took the uh, the media and the song waves. It's called uh, the, the ah, man, now it's on the tip of my tongue. They did this experiment with sand. So you can place it on a plate. It's a plate experiment. You put sand on a plate and put the music vibrations and it creates these crazy designs. Oh, okay. So every all the frequencies, different frequencies make different artistic patterns. So I took the mean frequency of every song of, of the, the, I think it's a 12 track album. So we did the mean frequency of all those and I did the plate experiment on it. And that pattern represents that song. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. If you, if you grab it, you can see how interesting that is to me. I thought that was just nuts that everything has its own individual characteristic characteristic on it. So interesting that's awesome and once you started playing i believe you and the two cody's began performing as lucky southern now when did that begin was that in high school that you actually started to play as a group um no we didn't we met each other right out of high school so we make a cody and cody they worked at hibbit sporting goods so they sold they sold shoes pretty much essentially um but he met him and Cody Tate. We call him Bill, by the way, because there's two Cody's. Right, we call him right. Bill Tate. Uh, Wild William Tate. That's what we call him. But, <laughs> so he could play and he was really good. And Cody Cannon said, hey, man, I work with this guy. It's really good. We need, to, we need to jam with him. And I was like, yeah, let's jam. Because that's the thing. You know, you get together and jam. Right. But it turned out that he was really good. And he'd been playing since he was like three. And he was, we were like, damn. that's it's." So once we got together, it was about right out of college as soon as we got back home out of college we were still young we didn't last at college very long as soon as we got back home we met him and us three we moved to another college town we lived together all three of us with uh half of the art tour manager right now we all kind of grew up together so we've known each other for a long time oh, okay and so we would play together at parties and stuff and we noticed that people really gravitated in the garage with us so all three of us playing in the garage together, it became where our our parties at the house became really large and we started getting into trouble. But we knew that they came there to watch us play in the garage and it's a big sing-along. So we were like, we went and played a few acoustic shows. We came up with that name, you know, the best name in the world, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and we played a couple and we were like, okay, I think it's something that we probably need to take seriously. So we pursued a bass player and a drummer, and we reached out to Cody Cannon's lead singer. We reached out to his cousin, Gary, which plays, he played a little guitar. We've known him our whole life. He came in. Jeff Hogg was a rival across from Palestine High School where I went to school. We always knew he was a drummer growing up. We had heard of him. We've known him. We used to go to parties with him. So we've all known each other for such a long time, you know, from the tour manager to the merchandise manager to the lead singers, the people in the band, we've, we've kind of grown up together. So it was a cool thing to start. Once we incorporated that, we got our first gig, recorded an EP, and the wheel started turning. Now, May 12th, 2007 is 
the day that you guys talk about whiskey Myers being born. And so what was the show that you played on that day that cemented this? Uh, uh, yeah, that's the day we were born. That's our birthday. That's what we <laughs> yeah. um, you know, that day, I think that was our very first show. So that's what we did with that. It went our first album release, but that was the day we knew that's where it started. And that's day one where we really had a grasp and we developed the love for just live energy of playing music. We knew that this is this is where we're going. That's and where was we, that show? That was in Gun Barrel City, te Texas. Yeah. Gun Barrel City, Texas. We opened up for Roger Crager. Yeah. I saw that you had that show. And then after that show, the owner of the bar said, I want you to come back next week and open for the Eli Young Band. Yeah, open up for Eli Young. Well, we shopped that. We made a, th a three-song demo that was just awful, but <laughs> looking back on it. But we shopped that, and we tried to book our own shows forever, and we could never get a show. And it was like, what else do we have to do to get shows? Like, we, don't, we didn't know what to do. We were young. But finally, that bar, he put it on the loudspeaker in front of everybody that was in there. Oh, and he okay. just watched everybody. If they enjoyed it, they enjoyed it. And he said, yeah, you want to come back? I think it was like the next night or two nights later. Do you want to play you know, with Roger Craiger? We were like, hell yeah, let's go. Did that. Uh, we ran up a bar tab that was more than what we got paid. At the end of the night, he uh, he told us, okay, I think I think you owe me $650. Oh, we're wow. like, how does that work? Yeah. Would you like to come back next week? And it's like, yeah, maybe if we don't owe you money next week. But yeah, we'd love to, especially with Eli Young. Yeah, it, it was just from there, we were hooked, you know, from the get-go. We were hooked. And, and he, he recognized the people that we drew in there just from – you know, playing those shows in the garage so much. We had a lot of friends and we had already developed a small little grassroots fan base just from how we did it beforehand. So we had the people, you know, we had half the people that were in the building already. So, I mean, of course he wanted us back next week. Right. But we were addicted from that. I mean, it was hook, line and singer. That's awesome. And as far as your guitar playing goes and your guitar, I wanted to ask you about one of your first guitars that I think is still a go-to for you that you received from Bill's uncle mm -hmm. when yeah. you went to, he was like, what, the largest collector of a certain guitar? Taylor, Taylor Acoustic Guitars, yeah. So how many guitar. did he have? And just talk about that experience at that time and looking back on it now, how that sort of influenced you at that time. For sure. Yeah, that's a, my black one, that's numero uno. So that was my first, uh, I'd had an acoustic guitar, so and a, another friend had let me borrow, you know, a cheaper guitar. It was nothing that was mine. You know, I grew up uh, fairly poor, and so we didn't have money for super nice things. We had everything we needed, but we didn't have super nice stuff. Right. But we went up to we went up to Oklahoma to his uncle, and he had told me that he was the largest collector of these Taylor guitars, and he's got like a smorgasbord of guitars everywhere. So in my mind, as a young kid, I was like, oh, they're going to be hung up in these racks and they're going to have lights beaming down, you know, like a museum. That's right. right. Yeah. And we got in there and I saw these drums. As soon as we walk in the living room, there's just drums everywhere. I was like, wow, this is this is wild. This is in his living room. You know, I didn't understand. We went up to the to the room where the tailors were and it was nothing that I expected. There was like hundreds of cases they were all stacked nicely, you know, all throughout the room in order. Oh, and it okay. Nothing like I thought. I thought it was going to be a museum. You know, I didn't understand that so you, I, how you have to take care of guitars. I didn't get it at the time. But right. I 
but yeah, so we just, he just opened up the doors pretty much and said, have at it. Whatever you want to see, whatever you want to touch, whatever you want to play, get at it. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't just Taylor's that he had. He had so much stuff, so much musical stuff that I wish as an adult, you know, and being in the industry for so long that I could go back into those rooms and really look and dive into what he had. I would be truly amazed. He had one room that was a, his pool table room. The pool table was full of nothing but pedals and the whole entire room was pedals, guitar. Really? And at the time I was overwhelmed. I didn't know even really what, you know, I wasn't in it. I was too young, but he lets go through all of his amps. We played all of his amps, all of his guitars. And at the end of it, you know, I think he knew that I didn't have too much and he had given get, uh, Bill a special guitar before. And I had played that Les Paul, the black Les Paul standard for, I ended up gravitating towards it forever. And at the end of it, he just asked me, you know, will you take care of it? Will you love it? You know, will you do the things you need to and I'll, I'll give it to you. And that was it. It's been my numero uno ever since. I just got done playing it about an hour ago. Oh, nice. That's amazing. Same, you know, yeah. Everything's still the exact same like he had it. It's, it. Nothing's changed with it. And so what does your guitar collection entail now? How many guitars do you own? Oh, right now I'm touring with I guess I have six on the road and at home I probably have, I don't know. I haven't done a count lately, but I've, I've probably got around 30 or 35. Oh, wow. Yeah. 30. All ex- weird, eclectic type guitar. You have one of 100s. I've got a lot of those. And usually something that has to stick out to me. I, I'm not really, it's gotta be something special or, or weird about it. That's one of a kind to me. Right. You know? certain stuff it doesn't have to be one of a kind that says every guitar collector in the world would want that but something will be off or quirky about one that i recognize that that's a special thing you know right so a lot of mine have have weird quirks to them that are that's interesting. awesome yeah and my problem is that i have a really hard time getting rid of them because there's something special happened with them or i recorded them on the album it's like you know you have to trade and get new stuff a buddy of mine, Bones Owens, he's constantly, he, he gets after it. And I just cannot release any of them. I just keep them. So I think I've sold one guitar ever. <laughs> and one guitar I think I heard you mention was, I don't know if he's still with you, but there was a friend, not sure his name, but you called him Rain Man. And he uh-huh. was someone who really helped you off the beginning. Talk about him and how he supported you and who he is and how important he has been to this journey. Rain Man. Yeah, that's our nickname for him. Uh, his name's uh, Raymond Parrott. And we met him when we were, we started touring in uh, Cody Cannon's mom's Suburban. So we would pile up seven or eight of us in the Suburban and go tour. I don't know how we survived any of that. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. And we met him at some sort of small show and we happened to meet up at the same gas station. And I think we we're doing a private party for somebody. And at the gas station, we saw Raymond, Rain Man, and then uh, he was like, hey, let me fill your gas tank up for you. And we we're like, no, you don't have to do that. And he's like, no, I understand the struggles at the front of all this. And I understand how I can see how great you guys are. Let me help you. Because one day, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know. Let me do whatever I can for you. And he filled up our gas. And that relationship was born for a while. He's still a good friend of ours. And he ended up, uh, the guitar that Cody Tate got from his uncle was a uh, uh a Fender Strat, and it was one of one ever made in the color 
scheme. It was a special green. And there was only one guitar ever made of it. And that was his numero uno. Well, it got, it got stolen at a Chili's parking lot one time out of the trailer. Major. Oh, man. You know, he tore down because it's so special to him. Yeah, we I bet. That guitar for years, we tried to locate that guitar, never found it. But uh, so Rain Man took it upon himself to try to color match and exact the exact specs to that guitar. And he gave it to Cody Tate. As oh, wow. Lee, trying to replace that for him. Such a special thing. And, he, you know, he ended up giving Cody Cannon another guitar that was special to him. And then he gifted me a, uh, a Les Paul that was a, one of very limited run of, of Gibson guitar whenever they, they had to switch woods. So it's got a maple neck on it. And they did a limited run. They didn't make very many of them, but very special guitar he gifted to me. And I still, I still play it all the time. I'm bringing it back out next week on tour for the first time. I took it home. I toured with it for a little bit. But now I gotta I gotta bring it back in the mix. It's a beautiful natural flame top uh, Les Paul custom that's got a maple neck. It's really beautiful guitar. That's awesome. And I think I heard you talk about a certain amp that you were playing. That the first time you heard it, you were just like, "Oh man, I have to have that." But you know, back in the day, you talk about not having much and, you know, not being able to get that sort of stuff. So now at this point in your career, when you're able to get all this equipment and all this gear, does it really mean something special to you because of how you grew up and because it just stuff wasn't given to you back then? Right. Yeah, it's pretty surreal. It's, it's pretty wild to think that you dreamed about half of these things, you know, that you wanted so much want versus need, you know, you didn't need all of that stuff. And eventually you get to a point, I guess, in your career to where those things kind of show up at your doorstep, you know, whether or not, you know, Gibson's always been great to me. We've been on board and Vox. So, you know, Vox and Korg, it's surreal to see it actually manifest into something that you dreamed about. So every, every now and then you got to take a step back and just be like, wow, you know, this is, this is stuff that I always wanted and it's, it's actually happening. But yeah, the first time I, we pulled up, uh, I don't remember where we are, we were on tour somewhere, but I, I played a Vox handwired and it was a fawn, you know, such a cool cabinet. And I was like, well, let's dig that out and play. I've never played on that. And that was my first introduction to Vox. Oh, okay. And I was hooked from there. I played a little combo and before you know it, it built into a relationship with Fox. I've got a great relationship with those guys. And now, now I've got stacks of them on stage. that looks like a wall. So it's, <laughs> it, it, it's a beautiful thing, you know, to be so lucky that this stuff comes at you like that. That's awesome. That's amazing. And as an independent band, you're obviously always pushing forward. You're always looking at what's next. You're always working hard to take that next step. So is it difficult, especially in that situation, to take a step back and look at where you've come from and appreciate the success you've had? Right. Yeah, we live life in the fast lane. You know, it's hard and, and your schedule gets so hectic that most of the time it's hurry up and wait and you you're so rushed and so moving toward the next thing during the day that sometimes you sit there and it's like well I got 10 minutes to kill and it's like 10 minutes seems like an hour because you've been rushing so hard right yeah it gets a little difficult to really take a step back and reflect but you know I think if we've always made it a point to try to stay humble and I think you know how we were raised and where we came from I think that had a lot to do with it but 
you know, sometimes you you do have to reflect and say, man, this is crazy. You know? And I think it was around sort of the 2017, maybe as far as sort of the timeline on social media that you really started to sell out basically everywhere you went from New York to California, down to Texas, everywhere you were going, you were selling out. And so when that hits within your career, is there a point where you guys noticed it, where you felt you had crossed the line into something bigger? For sure. Always. Yeah, for sure. As soon as it started taking off, because we took the, you know, being an independent band, like we've spoke about is really hard. You know, that's not the easy way out. There's a whole lot of easy way outs and avenues that you can take. So being independent like that, you really have to fight and scratch to get everything. And we took a super grassroots approach, like a lot of guys do. We're not the only ones in history to do it. Yeah. But to see your hard work start to pay off and you developed, you know, people, we just needed to be heard. And we knew if we could get in front of people and they would hear us. But over the years, we figured that out that we just need to be in front of them and we can get them. But, you know, they just need to hear us. So as soon as we saw that in around 17, I think you said, but. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, we're on to something. We're starting to grab them. We're getting them, you know? And one thing led to another. And each time we used to call it, you know, we have these peaks and valleys. You know, we have the valleys where it planes off and then we have a rise. And we've right. constantly been on that rise, making other stuff happen to continue the success of the, uh, of the band. And it's, we've been fortunate, you know, those, those peaks have always continued to uh, come at us, fortunately. You had one of those peaks in 2019 with your self-titled album. Now, coming into 2020, how important was that peak for you in the dive that everything took? Yeah, um, we've, we used to touch on that a lot. We would joke around and be like, ah, you know, we were one of the biggest independent bands in the world and then COVID happened and everything went to crap. Yeah. You know, we were like, hopefully they don't write a book about us one day. It's like, you know, it's, that was it for them. They're done. Right. But yeah. But we'd seen that next rise with that album, you know, and before that, there was so many different things to where those peaks, everything stayed on that plane. And like I said, super fortunate for that, but something always happened to keep us rising. And that album was another one of them. And, you know, self-producing it was a big deal. And it was a lot of pressure that we we had came off of uh, two Dave Cobb records and yep. you know, Dave's a fabulous producer with Stapleton and between all the fantastic guys he's been, we were involved in that mix of his rise and he was rising with that as well. So it was like the pressure was on whenever we decided to make a 360 degree turn and us produce it, you know? So we just had the mindset, let's go in there. Let's make the record. And if it sucks, then we'll ask somebody and we'll give them that to them as a demo and say, Hey man, we need your help. You know, <laughs> right. It sucked. But at the end of it, we felt really confident and we were like, you know, we were confident going into it from the get go as a whole band and a unit, you know, to be able to pull off a bunch of heads producing an album. We did great. We didn't fight. We don't fight as a band. We know how to fight. That's a key thing for anybody. You got to know how to fight. Right. And not get a, uh, you know, you can't be too sensitive. You got to be able to roll with the punches. But coming off of that and then the success of that and then COVID happened, you know, we were doing these bigger rooms, bigger places, you know, the biggest that we've always done, which we're still doing as we speak, fortunately. Yeah. It just continued to rise. And that was a really scary moment that we had to shut it down. You know, we're the first ones to 
be cut off and we were the last ones to come back to work. So it was really scary. But fortunately enough, we, we, uh, we kept our business model in a direction to where we could take care of all of the guys that have been with us since the get-go. Oh, okay. you know, the new employees that we've added, everybody was taken care of. We were all fed. We, we were fortunate enough to prepare for something like that, even though you can never prepare for anything like that. Fortunate enough, you know, everything was good. Everybody ate. Everybody had their bills paid. So it was good. It was really scary, you know, but we were just ready to get back to rocking, you know. Yeah, I bet. And personally for you, just in the mentality of being an artist, like you said, your mentality for years had been, we need, if we get in front of them, then we're going to grow our fan base. And you guys were on the road a lot, like ever since the beginning. And so when 2020 hit, not only on the business side, and are we going to be able to come back from this, but just for you personally, mentally, what did that just stop? mean to you and not being on the road and not getting out there and being stuck at home you did have your son so i'm sure that helped in sort of keeping you sane but what was it like for you yeah so you know growing up touring since i was 19 you know it's a it's it can take a toll on a lot of people so i was really concerned for mental health for guys who tour like that it's it's a life that you're so used to so many things, you, not even just attention, like having an attention thing, like mentally, whenever you turn that into nothing, like that goes from touring on the road, camaraderie, you know, the attention thing, the energy and the addiction of actually playing live. I truly do think people, it's, a, it's, a, it's I compare it to like a baseball game or if you've ever played sports or if you have to do public speaking, like you get this, this high from it, that's, you know, it's a, it's a huge, you can get addicted to that, I believe, right. you know, yeah. so you have that. And then all of a sudden you flip that on its head and it's gone. So at first there's struggles that come with that. So I was really worried about all the guys just making sure that, you know, Hey, are you good? We need to get together. Let's, let's hang, let's get together and have the camaraderie. Let's have a few beers, whatever we got to do, you know, but we all, we all did pretty good with it. Everybody still played music. We played and we wrote music throughout it. You know, okay. we ended up writing a lot of tunes that made it on this new record that came out of it. Um, and you you touched on me having a baby. That was a big thing that kept my mind moving forward towards another project, you know, and the pregnancy. So that was, you know, and us getting into a new house. So that really took my mind off of losing one thing and gaining another. So I, I coped really well during the whole thing. Right. Because basically because of my son being born. So. Yeah, that's awesome. And what, how is that, has that changed things? Because you're on the road right now, this summer, you're heading out for, I think, 41 dates or so. Um, You talk about the new album for that. I believe you guys locked yourself in the studio for a month or so. So what do these stretches mean for you now that you have your son at home waiting for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a little different. Yeah, you get a little homesick more now. I guess a little tougher. I catch myself just going through my phone, looking at videos of all kinds of stuff. And it'll make you a little sad because, you know, we got off of not touring and then all of a sudden we had to jump back in it. Yeah. But we were so eager. It gives you mixed emotions. You get so eager to go back to touring and, but you still get homesick because you, now you miss your child and, and your family. So mixed emotions, but we, we've scheduled, we've got our schedule together where we're having more dates at home. So it's, it's been okay for sure. 
And your wife, Hope, I believe you met her, what was it, around 20, 2009, around there that you guys met? Yeah, yeah, I think it was 2009. Yeah, we've been together for a, a while now. Yeah, it's basically been almost the life of the band that you have been together for. And what is that like to have someone on this journey with you and understand what you've gone through and understand what it takes to do this rather than them jumping in, you know, halfway through and not knowing the hard work that it takes to do this? Yeah, she she's seen the highs and the lows, the development. She's seen the whole thing. And, you know, I've always been honest with her. So she's she's always known everything about the business and everything. So it's I'm fortunate to have a partner like her that's been, you know, she's had my back through the highs and the lows. You know, I think it takes somebody like that, a strong woman or a partner like that behind you that can push you through hard stuff and still understand that. I know you have to leave, you know, I know you have to leave and I understand it. And she's been around it the whole time. I'm just fortunate to have a woman like her for sure. That's awesome. And now you talked about the new album. Let's talk about that a bit coming out of 2020, 2021. Obviously you want to get back on the road. You want to get back in front of a live crowd, but going into this album, was there a different feeling within that as well? Because it's, like sort of almost like a fresh slate, you have to sort of kickstart things again. Was it a different feeling for you guys? Yeah, yeah, we say it all the time, you know, this album has so, this new one has so much pressure on you. All it takes is, you know, one wrong turn and you can lose everything you've been, you've been hoping for. At least that's the approach that we take. And maybe we put too much pressure on ourselves to do good. Maybe that's a wrong approach. Who's to say it is? I don't know, but it works for us. Right. So, you know, we did the self-titled that one that we produced and we said, let's go for it again. And we took the same approach. If it sucks, then we'll, we'll have, we'll ask somebody for help. But if it doesn't suck and we feel confident in it, we'll, we'll, we'll take it to the moon. So we felt good and we wanted to bring in horns and we needed a fresh vibe. We didn't want to stay stagnant as, you know, many artists do, whether it's music or not, you get stagnant. Um, we brought in horns and we brought in just a fresh new thing and a whole lot of songs. I think we had 34, 35 songs on the board to oh, wow. run down as a band and see which ones vibe and click good. So, you know, I think people and we had spoke on it and I think people mentioned a lot that it may have, oh, this is a fresh sound for them. Right. So we, the, I guess the media has pumped up a fresh new sound and it's like, well, you know, it's still us. Yeah. But as artists, I think you don't want to be stagnant, you know? And if we get still, then we feel we're not in a groove. We're not doing anything new. So the sound's not new. It's just that we added in another flavor on top of it. So we just added in some horns. We've wanted to do that since we were kids. We love horns, you know, from the stones to you name it, they all had horns on them, you know? Um, but as a, as a fan, you know, you hear stuff and you don't want your artists to change. I'm scared if they change, I like all of this stuff. I'm the same way. It's like my biggest fear is like, oh, don't change, you know? Yeah. And it's like, artists, you're not, we're not changing at all. We're just adding in another little flavor on top of the same us that's been doing the same thing you know, forever. And who played the horns? Oh, we had these guys out of Austin, man, a couple of dudes. We had uh, six of them. Okay. So, they, yeah, they're all separate guys that had in bands, and a couple of them played at a, we had some of them in the orchestra. We had an orca a small Austin orchestra come out for a song. 
um, just a bunch of several different guys. And then we put together a little group and they're actually going to come out with us on this next tour. We're going to run them to, uh, I think we'll have them at Whitewater Amphitheater shows. we got a couple of nights there in a row and I think we'll have them out at Red Rocks too. Oh, nice. So it'll, it'll be cool. We'll have background singers and horns and it'll, it'll be a fun time. And so how did that affect the production process in adding these different layers? Did it make it a little more challenging in the final production of the album? Yeah. So all of us guys, like we didn't grow up playing proper music. We can't read sheet music. We can't do anything of that. Oh, okay. We live in the, uh, hey, go boom, 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 boom. And whenever you get to sheet music guys, they're saying the notes, you know, like, hey, do, do, on the half step, like, I still can't even say it. So we don't speak that way. So the that was a hard thing for us to convey okay you're this guy and we're these type of guys we had to learn how to uh, talk basically right. talk music and you know some of it we had a couple of issues but once we worked through that and we all got on the same page you know we knew how they operated we would learn their lingo they knew how we we operated and once we got on the same page it was off to the races it was good and within the songwriting i know on your 2019 album i believe there was a song bad weather that you had brought in that was written six or seven years before that so heading into this album is it all music that was created sort of from 2020 onward or is there some older material that was written in the past that you have brought into this project right um I, there's a limited amount i'm not sure I, th I think cody may have written one that was a little older but most of it is new and fresh. You can tell in some of the, the songwriting, if anybody follows us closely, you know, in our lives or whatever, you can really, it, it reflects stuff that's gone on. You know, there's some songs, I think maybe the next single that's being released is you can really tie it towards, uh, towards the COVID stuff, you know, towards the beginning of being home. If you really pay attention to the lyrics, you can tell the period that we're in, in our songwriting for sure. And some, you know, some of the sons, Cody and I both had a son. Yeah. You, some of that ties in, you know, if you follow us closely enough, you'll understand for sure. But we left it loose enough to where it's like, we're not saying COVID in our songs. Yeah. Know? I'm not saying my son's name. It, it, we translate it to, to everybody. It's for everybody, not just us, but you can definitely tell if you, if you follow it closely enough that what we're talking about. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so coming out of COVID with this new album, you recently with um, Red Rocks, you sold out in what mere minutes, hours? Yeah, it wasn't very long. It was <laughs> fairly quickly. Yeah. And so coming off of COVID and like you say, that not knowing of what was going to happen when you came out of it, how exciting is this period to know that people are still there? People are still ready for it and they're hungry for it. How exciting is that for you guys as a band? Oh, yes. Come, you know, coming out of the, the period, you know, like you say, of, you know, wondering, I think every, that was everybody too. Every musician that tours, what's going to happen? You know, what's it going to be like whenever we come out? You know, the restrictions on half the venues and, you know, the drop counts and, you know, the, the restrictions have always mattered. And if there's no restrictions, how is it? And we take on a responsibility of no restrictions. If there are restrictions, people don't like it. People do like it. People hate it. So it's like, it was a really, I think it's hard for everybody still, you know, but there's somehow we found a fine line in it to try to be safe and try to do the right thing. And long story short, it's, it's exciting to see whenever you come back out here that people have waited on you 
and, and they're still excited to see you. And we're fortunate, man. Our fans are the best in the world. We've always said that. Everybody says that, but we have a true connection with our fans. That's just, that's unbelievable to see that they're still here for us. We're still here for them too, man. We're in. And you had a live stream that you did from Billy Bob's. And I saw an interview that you did before that and sort of the nerves going into that of playing again and just nerves for the first time in a long time. And so now that you're back on the road, do you have a different feeling or is it sort of just right back in the saddle and it's just right back at it? It's right back in the saddle. It's right back. It took us, you know, the live, the live stream, that's something we're not used to because we've always been a live band. And being out on a stage like that with no audience was a little tough for us because right. we always we reflect with live and that's just how it's always worked and that's how we are. We're not very good actors. We tried that on Yellowstone. You know, we've got we got to stick to our craft that we're in. Uh, great respect to the actors, um, but yeah. So that was a little tough for us. But just being back in the saddle and once we played, I'm going to say two shows, it took two shows and it was like, we're back home. Here we are. We're in it. We're staying. Right. Yeah. And now you had the chance to open for the stones and you're going to be playing red rocks. Which one is the bigger bucket list? Oh man. Yeah. That's tough. Uh, that's a tough, tough questions. Uh, playing with the rolling stones, you know, that's it. We actually got to, uh, we met with them backstage after our show and hung out with them for a little bit and took some pictures and stuff. That's, that's, uh, that kind of tops. That's the topping on the cake. Right. Yeah. As soon as Mick actually picked us out off of a iPad, I think he's flipping through bands that were, he's watching them live on an iPad. Oh, Mick okay. Jack, and he stopped on us and he was like, Oh, who is this? You know, who are these guys? We need them. So that's how that was born really organically flipping through his iPad full of bands, found us and got the call. And we all had to go change our underwear, I'm sure at the moment, <laughs> but <clears throat> it was surreal. That was the most hectic, most hectic day in the world. Everything that could go wrong was going wrong during the day. Nothing was right between guitars and monitors. But once, once we got on stage, that was it. It was great. That was the most hectic, coolest day of my life for sure. One of them. That's awesome. And with Red Rocks, have you been there before yourself, like to see a show or anything? No, not at all. Not just myself. We all vowed that we wouldn't go there until we had lined it one day. Oh, really? Since we were young, we've been invited to play many shows at Red Rocks. Uh, We've been invited to open up. Um, We've wanted to go to a million shows there to go watch such a historic venue like that. Yeah. You know, bucket list. And not one person, band and crew, anybody that's on this road has ever been to Red Rocks, has never stepped foot in the place. We vowed whenever we headline it, whenever we have the opportunity, that'll be the first time. And we'll we'll be awed for the first time we're going to take it in. So that'll be our first. Wow, that is going to be amazing. I can't believe that you, especially with being asked to open for people, that must have been the hardest thing in the world to turn that stuff down. Yes, it was terrible, you know, and not all of them were you know, they weren't right. Some of them weren't right for us. And some of them, you know, were different looks that the the approach that we were taking at the time, it didn't fit well for us. So we took that into account too. But, you know, any normal dude would have said, yeah, I'm going to play Red Rocks for sure. But we had to, you know, really get stupid with it and say no a couple of times. But yeah, it's going to be special. That's awesome. So we have a couple of singles off the new record now do we have a release date for it i don't have it written down but do we have a release date july i believe it's july the 29th 
Oh, I could okay. be off on that, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's the 29th. It's, it's late July for sure. And so what is that process like? Because obviously you guys are done recording. And so is it difficult to just sit there and wait for it to come out? Terrible. And we all get, you know, we all get frustrated with it when we go back and forth, but it's like, there's nothing we can do. You know, we've been through the process. You figure by now we would have figured out after this many albums, but still it's like, we need to get it out now. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, you have to be patient and it takes, you know, it takes so much stuff into releasing a record on the back end of it, of, of the timing of releasal is super important on management side. And you have to compete with other people's releasal and, you know, competing on the charts, chart placement and, you know, on billboard charts and everything else. There's a whole strategy that has to go into it, you know. And then on the front side, you have mixing and mastering and artwork and, you know, the design and all this other stuff that goes into it. That takes in itself, that takes six months, you know, easily. Oh, wow. So, and then by the time you finally figure it out, you, you've at least been done, you know, you've been done for a while. So uh, there's a lot that goes into it and we still get frustrated that we can't release it the next day, but that's just that. Cause by the time it's released, you're going to be ready to move on to the next album. We're moving to the next one, you know, but yeah, we're, we're excited for everybody to hear it. It's been, it's been too long since we finally got everything done and we're excited. Thank you once again so much for listening and thank you to John for stopping by and sharing his story. Be sure to check out all of Whiskey Myers' new music throughout the year wherever you stream your music. Please also be sure to check out our website, countrymusicmademe.com. There you can listen to all of our episodes and also sign up for our newsletter to receive exclusive content and also stay up to date on all of our upcoming guests. Just head over to countrymusicmademe.com and hit that subscribe button. You can also find us on any streaming platform. So if streaming is your thing, head over to your favorite, search Country Music Made Me, and give us a follow there as well. Thank you once again so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Country Music Made Me. Music